Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. When first looking at what VCT or EIS funds invest in, there are many factors to take into consideration. Avid Karelsi is possibly the most experienced analyst in the sector, and he gives us a perspective on many of them, with plenty of tips on things to look out for. If you joined the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe in all good podcast services, either directly or following the link in the show notes. If you're only suggesting future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today I'd like to welcome Avod Karelsi, who is a product specialist at Evelyn Partners. Welcome to the podcast, Avod. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you. Good to be back. Yes. So we had you on for our first year-end panel, which is um, almost two years ago. But it's good to get you on for a one-on-one. Because I, I am conscious that you're one of the few people in the industry that's probably spent more time looking at products than I have. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've been in the industry now since the beginning, beginning of 2000, really. So as usual, in case anyone missed that panel a while ago, tell us how you became involved in venture capital. A bit odd um, entry, I guess. I'd worked in different industries before and ended up really looking for uh, a new challenge where I was introduced to Allenbridge, as, as was at the time, that's now MJ Hudson. And at Allenbridge, uh, initially, I'd been earmarked for uh, a career, I guess, in investment management there. But a few months in, they, they had an opportunity for me to, to become the IT manager, which was a, an interesting learning curve. I did that for a few years. And while I was there, sorting out the IT for Allenbridge. Uh, I also started looking after the, the data for the tech shelter report, as well as the website for the tech shelter report. And that's where I really started getting interested in, in all things EIS, VCT. We obviously had a couple of other older products that were um, being wound down really by the government at a time, like the film partnerships, enterprise zone trusts. But my love really was kindled uh, at that point for EIS and VCTs. And then in 2004, when I started my MBA, I made that switch to join the tech shelter uh, report team as a junior analyst, really. So it's a bit of a demotion, but uh, it's been up and up er- ever since. So that was, uh, yeah, that, that, that's, the, that's how I got into it. Mm-hmm. And you're now with Evelyn Partners, which is probably a name a lot of people don't know, but they will probably know th- the company sort of behind it. So who are Evelyn Partners? So it's the merger of Tilney and Smith and Williamson. Uh, Tilney itself was a merger between, I guess, Tilney. Uh, Tilney took over uh, Tauri, which was previously called Tauri Law, which is when I joined uh, the firm, uh, I joined Tauri Law. That was then taken over by Tilney, and then Tilney merged with uh, Smith and Bill, Smith and Williamson. As a firm, we provide um, a lot of services, uh, not just financial planning, but we also work uh, very closely with entrepreneurs uh, and business owners. We even help EIS companies uh, and and VCTs with qualifying uh, rules. Um, So we have teams that that approach EIS from a completely different angle than what what I would do. Um, But I work uh, specifically with uh, the financial planning team but I also work closely with the investment management team, um, especially where it comes to best invest. So there's quite a few uh, brands that I guess we have subsections with we have within the firm. And do you have to give sort of 
different sort of knowledge or different advice for each of those areas? Or is it all really one common approach and you're just sort of farming out in a slightly different way? So there's a difference in branding. If I so write a, re- a VCT research note, for example, I will brand that quite differently and there'll be different risk warnings for Best Invest uh, and the clients that buy that via investment management. Where I work for financial planning, again, there will be a different branding and a slightly different uh, risk warning. But the content, obviously, for clients always has to be the same. We treat all clients equal in that, in that sense and we, we provide the information at the same point at the same time to everybody, obviously. So it's, uh, but it's great working with people in the professional services team because we can talk a bit more about the tax side of things, the structuring side of things where necessary. So that's very helpful. But yeah, there's, there's only really one client with two different brands. <laughs> okay, so that's, a, that's an interesting way of looking at it. So as I mentioned earlier, you have spent an awful lot of time looking at products and whether it's VCTs, EIS funds and and, and various other things in the sector. And I thought it might be good to get your perspective on how to actually select a fund, be be it an EIS fund or a VCT. And so I'm going to start off by just sort of giving an open question about what do you think about first when you start looking at one of these products? So, yeah, so that depends on whether I would be having a conversation with an advisor or an investment manager, not with clients, because I'm obviously I'm not client-facing. I'm not authorized or regulated by the FCA on an individual basis, so I can't give advice. But where I'm talking with advisors or investment managers, I really want to know first whether their clients are looking for a particular feature. So sometimes it could be just as simple as, my client is looking for an income, at which point we'll look for VCTs, for example. Uh, and then we can start looking at which VCTs could potentially be appropriate for the for the advisor uh, of the advisor's client or the investment manager's client. So that's a more of a, an, a, I guess, the advice angle, the client angle that would drive the conversation around which, which products we would be looking at in, in that sense. Although I presume that you're looking really to, for an answer on what makes a particular VCT stand out or a particular EI stand out? I, I, I think that's where, that's where we're going to get to. I think the client aspect is very interesting, you know, or, or if you're a direct investor, you, you know what your own needs are. But I think the common thing is, yeah, I, as you say, what is what makes a good VCT or what makes a good EIS or what, you know. Yeah, and again, I think it's important that you, you keep in mind the, the end user of that product. So for example, say when, when you look at VCTs, it's an easy one to look at VCTs and go, okay, so what, what's the dividend strategy for that uh-huh. VCT? Because there will be individuals who would want an income out of the VCT. Equally, there are investors who are not that bothered about an income, uh, or maybe not yet, at which point you can start looking at VCTs that aren't yet paying um, a, a dividend because they're brand new VCTs, for, for example. So there's always an angle of what's the end user looking for. So when I start looking at VCTs, I will keep that in mind. And so I will look for specific things that differentiate VCTs. So for example, on uh, so if you stick to the example of the dividends, if I have a group of VCTs that all have a dividend policy, I want to have a look as to how are they paying for that dividend. 
Is that simply by taking it out of reserves or are those dividends created by exits? And are those dividends sustainable by the, for the VCT, for example? So I will look at what's the dividend coverage for that VCT. Or are they and, and presumably that's yeah, yeah the, the you, you're factoring in there. Some VCTs have we're aiming for five percent a year, or yeah, that, that, that's that's quite a common target. And others saying we've got a, a smaller level dividend, and then we're paying out capital gains as special dividends. Yes, or or they will even look at paying out the gains and not and and on an ad hoc basis, as and when they make an exit. So. Yeah, you're right. Uh, there's a hybrid group as well that will do a, a relatively low level of income, uh, a different objective, and they will top that up with um, with specific uh, exits. And again, I would I'll still want to have a look at to see how sustainable that is, and whether the VCT is basically robbing Paul to pay Peter, or the other way around. So, in what what, what do you mean by robbing Paul to pay Peter, or Peter to pay Paul? Yeah, so. I'm very keen that over the long term, because this is, if you take snapshots of, say, a one-year basis, and say you're in, in AIM VCT and you've just had a route on uh, on AIM, and you're down by 20%, it's unfair to say, okay, this year you're paying a dividend and you can't afford that because you just lost 20% in value. So that's unfair. So at that point, I want to look at, so what does that look like over a three-year period, a five-year period? Are you, on average, making more money? then you pay out because if you start paying out more money than you make then you know you're eroding the capital value of the vct now for some investors that's not a problem because they're looking specifically just for income they don't bother about some capital capital erosion and for other investors that's important so i want to distinguish between that not necessarily have a value judgment for that but then give that information to the investors and the advisors to those investors to explain the difference you get a more informed decision yeah. process for a for, yeah. for clients. An informed client and, is good. Yeah. So that's so that's what, what, what I look for specifically. That's just an example of where, where dividends come in. Mm-hmm. And do you think the VCT industry is still, you know, because historically you had a, a common strategy, particularly when you had limited lifespan, was you'd, you'd stick whatever it was in, and over the next whatever eight years, you would get that capital returned as dividends plus whatever gains, and that pool of capital would erode to zero. Now, that's kind of gone, but I still get the impression that some people are still thinking along those lines. Well, yes, because technically speaking with a VCT, it's, you're, you're able to, to, to create a reserve, a distributor reserve, with a cancellation of the share premium account. Now, that's a technicality there, but basically it allows... VCTs to create a reserve from which they can pay a dividend. Now they can only do that after at least three years. That uh, after following the, the raise of that capital, I think it's just after three years. But they so there's a time lag, but it does mean that VCTs have the ability to have a dividend objective even in years in, during which they didn't make any gains or crystallized any gains, for that matter. So it does allow for a smoothing of, of, of dividends, which is favoured with a lot of investors because they do like the dividend. And, and predictability of income is something that some, some investors will rate highly, I presume. Absolutely. Which, again, this is why I will look at what's the dividend cover over a three- or five-year five period because 
you're also looking at uh, trends, really. And you can start looking at some VCTs that have a similar yield, but a better coverage for that dividend over time. And at that point, you could argue that some of those VCTs may be a little bit cheaper. On the, on the basis that effectively they have a reserve of some description that yeah. they can use. Yeah. So it's a, I'm not saying they're necessarily cheaper, but it's 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 a consideration that you can have when you look at uh, VCTs with the ability, at least for the long term, in different income. I mean, it's an interesting question for VCTs because you've got all shares are pretty much issued at par, give or take the odd little bit of expenses, but you still have discounts floating around and, and buybacks and, and, and questions. How, how strong is that a factor in your consideration of VCTs? So again, I will leave that up to the investor, but we have had conversations where I've been present where um, advisors and investors have discussed their concern about there not being a discount policy or buyback policy for VCTs. Because you have to think of it, if you're, um, and just keep to keep the number simple, but if you're buying, say, a share at a pound, and you get your 30p back, and that's great, but it's still worth a pound. Say it's worth 95 now after costs. And say you get 20p in divvies over time, which is great. But then when you come to sell it, if it's still 95p, you sell it, and maybe you get 80p back. And you're thinking, oh, so plus the 20p in divvies, I'm now back at a pound, plus maybe my income tax relief on the way in. But that's why I'm, I'd rather look for VCTs that grow in capital value over time and have a lower discount. Because for investors who then want to sell, you know, they, they're selling at a high effectively. So it's a, it's a much better return for them. So that's something that investors are fairly keen on to discuss with advisors, the ability for the VST to buy back shares clearly, but also that the, that the discount is a bit more narrow than say 10, 15%. They're looking really for the 5, 5%. And so that's something that I will publish as well for advisors and, and, and investors. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I find interesting because, I mean, most companies have buyback policies and, and, and the, 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 rate, the discount rate has drifted, you know, and most of them are sort of 5% or so some, some, yeah. some 5 to 10s and there's some 10s still. In some sense, there's so few without a policy now, it's kind of easy to avoid them. But at the same time, when I look at VCT accounts, there's so few shares being bought back by most of them. I wonder how relevant it is for investors. Oh, uh, absolutely. And the thing is, if you bought a VCT for a pound and it went to pound 50, you, and you, you sell that at a pound 40, you're not going to be, be upset when mm-hmm. you've got other VCTs that stayed at, at a pound and they have a 5p discount, right? So, it, But it's something that people talk about, especially around the time when it's the first VCT maybe. Mm-hmm. So to better understand the discount policy. But it's it's an important conversation to have with clients because you do want to talk to them about liquidity, um, especially with new investors and and the and the exit route, um, how that would work. If you know, how do you, do you use a broker? Do you go back to the VCT? Some VCTs now have the ability for you to call them direct. Um, some sell via the market maker. So there's there's different routes, and you do need to explain that to to investors the first few few times that they make the in, the investment clearly. 
Um, and while we're on the topic of VCTs, how do you think about things like calf drag? And you've got some legacy strategies from sort of pre-legislative changes in 2015, et cetera. How do these factor into your decision-making? So there are VCTs that have a really clear uh, investment model. They'll say, listen, we will raise this amount this year and we will have invested most of that money by the end of the year following. Mm-hmm. They know their pipe pipeline of new companies. They know what's required to help the existing portfolio companies with their cash flow needs and their investment needs. And so for those VCTs, I'm not too worried because I can see that there is a direct route effectively to to deploy that that money. Mm-hmm. I'm more concerned about VCTs that take their time. They go, oh, we only have to invest 30% in the year <laughs> following. Uh, we've got some time. So I'm quite keen to to see the difference between those VCTs because I'd rather have VCTs that don't sit too too long in cash. Yeah, have you seen a change in the last 12 months? Because the last financial year, we saw a huge fundraise for VCTs and aggregates. So you're basically a billion pounds. This is something that VCT managers have recently picked up on, I guess. Previously, a lot of VCT managers had income from the underlying companies, the portfolio companies. So this is not one of my findings, by the way. This is a conversation with VCT managers. But it's an interesting conversation around income. And for the VCTs, you can't really have an income from non-investments, or you can't have really your majority of income from non-investments. Mm-hmm. So previously, a lot of VCTs had money. This is the pre-15 style, MBO style investments, where there's lots of debt as well. Some of those VCTs had deals where 90% was debt and 10% equity in some of those deals. And a lot of income was generated by the portfolio. Now we're sitting in a situation where they can possibly make more money holding cash in the the bank. Now we've got some interest rates again. Yeah. Then with there's no real income coming from these young companies that they're currently investing into. So there's potentially a problem now for VCs that hold too much cash simply because they get that income and they shouldn't really be taking too much income from cash. If they had more income from the cash than, than the investment portfolio, what would be the consequences for them? Uh, there's some VCT qualifying rules that uh, are getting a bit tight. So, so effectively, they, they're, they're in danger of losing their VCT and taxes M states. Well, it's a conversation, think. right? It's a conversation they need to have with HMRC. And in the meantime, they need to deploy the cash. They need to deploy it quicker, maybe, and maybe not raise as much cash. Maybe raise smaller amounts each each year. Yeah, it's interesting. I've seen one. I've seen a couple of managers change their fundraising strategy over the past couple of years, where they were perhaps not raising every year. They're doing every second or third year. They've they've started to move in that direction. Yeah, so it's an interesting um, conversation to have, at least. And I hadn't thought of that either. So it's just something that some of the VST managers are now looking at as a consequence of their income mix having changed from having paid or getting debt. Basically, get interest back on on loans that they've given to companies. There are obviously some VCTs that still use more loan notes than other VCTs when they're where they back slightly later stage companies. You know, towards that five year old, six year old, seven year old group, 
as opposed to the earlier stage companies where equity is still king. So that's, um, but then you don't want to have too much in cash. No. Well, if, basically, if you're paying sort of 3% expenses a year, which is kind of typical to manage cash, that's not really, that's, that's going to be a drag on returns and, and you're kind of back yeah. to what you're saying. Yeah, and at that point, you also like I'd like to see VCTs reduce the AMC they get they get they get for holding cash. Mm-hmm. I've, I've I've thought about that as an idea as well. <laughs> you know, and some VCTs are doing that. I mean, they're actively reducing the AMC on on the cash pot, which I think is fair. I, I like to see that. So it's a, that's a plus in my book. Um, there's obviously a whole load of other things that I think are important when I look at uh, VCTs, but also with the IAS, clearly the IAS mm-hmm. fund managers. You know, that there's always a conversation around the strategy clearing, and the ability to ex- execute the strategy. Have they got the right people in place? You know, if you're looking at a, a, a manager that is investing in biotech companies, I would expect that a lot of the team has experience in biotech, whether that's from an educational point of view but ideally both educational and active work in, in, in that space. Um, so that's a, I mean, it's a very niche example, but uh, that, that I, I would expect specific expertise if you have a specific uh, niche strategy. But even for generalists, I expect you know, the ability to execute, and that does require variance and not necessarily fund management experience, but in industry experience as well. So, And, is, and how do you think about sort of, Team size, and in particular, or, or if we, yeah, because you know, I, I, I think you know, some EIS managers in particular are quite are quite small in terms of size of teams. Yeah, but that's also then quite often the function of the size of the fund that they're mm-hmm. managing. Yeah. So, and you see this with you see this with EIS managers that have grown over years over the years where they've, you know, when they were raising say five million, ten million a year deploying that in a fairly small group of companies if i see a fund manager where of an investment management team where i I would expect you know anywhere up to five companies per investment manager or per individual as a scope basically their ability to five companies in the portfolio per individual team member or up to up to five you know if you get over that i don't think that those individuals can give as much to those companies. And it depends also on the strategy, clearly. If you're a very active, hands-on investment manager where you want to roll up your sleeves, then you need more people. Yeah. If instead you're reliant more on getting non-exec directors in place, and whether that's a friendly chairman or whether that's uh, a friendly FD or whether that's uh, a non-exec, proper non-exec, I guess, whether that's individuals, say on the non-exec side, if you get people that are non-execs that are super angels, that have very specific industry experience, and that's why they become a non-exec. They're coming from your network. You get them to become a non-exec. They roll up their their sleeves for you, and then you have more of an observing role, maybe a monitoring role. You know, then you can do more with less of your own time, really. While you look at you know getting more companies. Uh, that you that you can invest in. So I, I think for the smaller managers, I want to see more use of external parties in that sense, where right. they where they bring in not 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 execs. And do you see many many managers with mismatches? Do you see 
many people are sort of saying your team size is, I mean, presumably you never say it's too big, but uh, where you sort of say, actually, you're not quite adequately resourced or you don't have the right experience or something along those lines? No, I've not, I've not really had that issue, actually. No, I mean, I mean the, the, some funds are clearly a bit small. Yeah. And it depends on whether you are, say you're a, a relatively small IFA firm, right, where you provide a really bespoke service to your, to your clients. And you can create a, you know, well-diversified portfolio over a period of five, six years. I would expect you to add, uh, I would expect, but <laughs> I think clients could expect in a very bespoke service that you would add as an advisor, you would add some of those smaller EIS funds and maybe some of those smaller VST funds to create a diversified port- portfolio that way. And and you say that because you think do you think a lot of the big managers are doing very similar things, or do you think, no, it's, think it's, it's just uh, the small funds or new managers are more innovative and they're bringing something different? No, sorry. What I mean by that is, if, say you're if you're a large wealth manager or a bank where you have a lot of processes in place, you'd probably be ending up simply because of committees, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and risk management within those firms. You probably end up with a a more narrow focus possibly on, on your panels that you provide to uh, to advisors where you're looking at maybe five to ten fund managers instead of being a fully whole of market where people can just pick and choose from a you know a smorgasbord of 70 years <laughs> managers mm-hmm. because that's obviously a lot of research and not necessarily relevant to a lot of those clients whereas if you're a smaller more nimble IFA smaller where you're not necessarily beholden by uh, to various committees and risk management conversations, and provided you have a good research provider that can cover some of those smaller EIS fund managers, then I think you can provide a lot more, like a, a much more bespoke solution to your investors. Equally, if you're a, a normal investor without an advisor, I think it's also something that you want to consider smaller managers taking into consideration clearly that smaller managers sometimes have a higher risk of failure, just like small companies, like you know, new companies, smaller companies that are more susceptible to turbulence. So equally, you know, equally that you would expect the fund manager to be aware of the potentials for uh, the ups as well as the downs for small companies, you would have to have the same mindset when you look at fund managers that are a bit smaller, a bit younger. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, if you buy into an EIS fund, your portfolio, you know, you're probably not going to last us exit for a decade uh, yeah. or, or maybe longer. So you want a manager that is going to be around in a decade, hopefully to, to sort that out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so for larger firms, they look at counterparty risk, they look at financial strength. Uh, I, I'm not saying that smaller uh, financial planning firms don't do that. But that is something to, to look at, clearly, the financial strength of, of the team. Now, some models with you know smaller VCTs and smaller EIS fund managers, where they charge portfolio companies for fees instead of the, the investors, uh, that is a model, obviously, that is being used for the smaller managers who can't charge all those fees to the investors because there won't be anything left. 
to invest. I mean, I've, I've seen managers that will charge anywhere up to 6% initial of the portfolio companies. Which is fine if you're not taking anything later, but... Or... Oh, no, there'll be, there'll be some uh, performance fees and some other fees, but... <laughs> So, so I think costs, yeah, so costs are also an important aspect, clearly. But again, as a firm, we don't mind costs, but we want them all to be transparent so advisors and clients can take a view. And, and do you see a wide range of costs? I mean, certainly there's a wide range of the way fees are structured, but how do you think of these terms of, you know, is this a case of there are some people out there you think are just too expensive, or do you think that there's... Ev- Everybody's just kind of in the ballpark, and it and it's and it's there's nothing too agrarious. No, I think um, it's interesting to have conversations with these team managers and the ask managers who don't charge portfolio companies mm-hmm. at all. So no arrangement fees, no monitoring fees, no exit fees from those portfolio companies who only charge investors. Yes, it's something I've I've got a lot of sympathy with the argument. It's kind of difficult to prove in the sense of saying that you don't charge a company, therefore you're likely to get the better companies because the better companies have a choice of managers that are going to choose the person who doesn't charge the fee. That is, that is, an, that is an argument that is being used, absolutely. And, uh, and it, it's, it's intuitively attractive, but also maybe, maybe in 10 years' time or 15 years' time when we've got data and we could compare managers, uh, we might be able to do that. But right now... It's very hard to sort of say that is genuinely true. No, you're right. And and I think you've previously done some research. Over the first time, actually, um, we met, you did a presentation on impact of fees on, on the, or the then crop of fees, team managers, I guess. And you looked at whether uh, that had an impact on, whether fees had an impact on long-term performance. And I don't think there was a strong link there was almost no correlation at the time. I haven't updated that research for a few years, but yeah, I, I, I think ideally what you're saying is even if, I mean, the average IIC fee is kind of like 3% and there's still companies on top of that, yeah, uh, company fees on top of that. But what you're hoping is that's kind of like a different order of magnitude from the capital returns because you're hoping you're going to get something into the teams on the venture yes. assets so if the difference between 2 and 3 3% is quite small relative to that return of course throwing in the other factors about vcts about cash drags etc i mean you of course yeah. you, you don't you don't necessarily get that translating through which does make fees more important but i was i was really surprised to see there was at the time there was absolutely zero correlation yeah and it's um we did some numbers recently in the conversation with uh, another VC team manager, but we were looking at this is slightly going back again to the early conversation around so cash drag, but taking into consideration costs um, or just running costs, etc. Um, but looking at, I think they did a, a review where they would have to hit thirteen percent IRR a year in order to effectively create this dividend cover effectively because you know that that's after costs etc so and so you would be looking at vcts that have a irr that's higher in this particular case for that particular vct so that worked out quite nicely for them over time they had a higher irr but that is something to to look at 
I mean, certainly it's an interesting factor in, in the the VCT versus EIS fund sort of discussion in terms of, you know, we, we've got this product structure of VCTs, which means there's you know, the cash drag in particular. So EIS implicitly, all other things being equal, should be more attractive. But VCTs have, you know, apart from the income, there's an existing portfolio which you don't get in EIS. How do you think about these things in terms of, sort of whether a client should go into EIS or VCTs, or is it primarily determined by their preferences? Oh, I think from a, even from a portfolio point of view, though, um, a lot of EIS funds have the same issue as the VCT managers now, in that they will often invest more than once in the same company. Uh-huh. Uh, and so when you have a conversation with an EIS fund manager, you're also having that conversation around what's the split between follow-ons uh-huh. and new investments. And so you're always having this, the similar conversation with that you would have with the VST manager. So quite often, you have a really good idea as to what your client is going to get already. So there is something to to, to be said for that. The, I think where it becomes an interesting conversation is on uh, the valuations. Mm-hmm. Where, um, what topic du jour this year? Yeah. No, so where what you want to see is you want to see an uplift at the point of sale compared to where the last valuation was. Because I think those are really interesting investments, investment opportunities. At that point, you already get a discount of 30% on the way in. And if you then have a manager, whether it's VST or EIS, that is consistent, not, not always on the ball, but consistent in getting a further uplift on exit, then it becomes an even more attractive proposition. So you have to get to know the portfolio a bit better. You have to get to understand the, 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 the trends with those managers. So it does require that you spend a bit more time on the on the past performance, clearly. But sometimes that's an, not necessarily an indicator of, of future performance, but at least the indicator of a particular pricing strategy or valuation strategy. Yeah, yeah I mean, obviously the FCI is, isn't keen that we based investment decisions on past performance with our famous phrase. But at the same time, the academic research I found suggests there is a degree of persistence amongst sort of venture capital management. Now, most of that's US rather than UK-based research, but it does suggest that the relevance of past performance. I think the challenge, and I'd be interested in your perspective of this, is the depth of track records. Because, yes. you know, so, so I, if I think of a standard diversified portfolio, which for equity would be 30, 40, I th- I, I, I think it should be bigger for venture capital. How many people have 34 exits on their current investment strategy? I think some VCTs can point to part of their portfolio uh-huh. where they've always invested in, in smaller tech companies. But even there, that was, you know, some VCTs, that was a relatively small part, perhaps, of those port- portfolios. So it's difficult, again, to, to, to extrapolate. And so we are really dealing with a group of VST managers, but also a group of EIS managers, because the, the field has completely changed since 2015, really. And a lot of new entrants, as well as people that had existing uh, maybe angel networks, et cetera, where they've now formalized that process with a, with, with a fund. But there's very long-term, like you say, depth of, uh, of exits. And that's during a period where equity prices have been going up and up and up until very, very recently. So it, it is a risk that you're taking, absolutely, 
Want daar, zo'n bom leeft die uh, los te lief. <laughs> Van die huis. <laughs> yes. so it, is, it is absolutely a concern. And so, and people need to be aware of that. They need to be aware that uh, equity prices have gone up since 2008. Quite relentless. Uh, until recently, clearly. Because earlier this year, there was some pressure on valuations in, uh, in venture capital. And we've seen some valuations cleared, not just in the AIM side, but also for the uh, the bigger VST and the ass houses where they've uh, reduced some of the valuations as a consequence. Well, yeah, you kind of had to, if the comparators are, are, have moved down, then, I mean, one of the interesting things I was sort of thinking a few months ago is that if the quote market's moving down a little bit or a lot as it transpired, to what degree would VCTs with, unquote, investments sort of follow that? Yeah, and some companies have grown in the in the in the in the same period. Absolutely. So, well, that's uh, the trade. You know, if, if a company's growing yeah. at twenty percent and is twenty percent a year and is twenty percent cheaper, that's almost like a, a wash. But very few companies will exactly match those figures. But it, yeah, uh, and but I, I don't think that you because when you start selecting fund managers, you also have to look at their their systems, their approaches. You know, how in depth is their research? You know, do they get do they get involvement from uh, some VC manager? I call them call them venture partners, but effectively, these are sort of an advisory board, effectively of of you know, real deep techno uh, deep, deep industry knowledge that can come in and ha- I guess give an opinion to the investment committee around some of the companies that they're selecting for investment. When you are dealing with fund managers that spend a lot of effort on trying to avoid mistakes. I mean, I wouldn't say it's too rigorous, but it's really good to see that some managers, they just have more resources, I guess. So well thought through investment process, well thought through portfolio management. Uh, clearly, if you're a startup EAS manager or a startup VST manager, you won't have those those resources. Mm-hmm. But I want to see that those are in, in the plans. Yeah. Um, show, show that you thought about them. Yeah, absolutely. Just like you would expect them to think to approach their portfolio companies in the same way. You know, they're not going to, you know, when you start investing in small businesses, there may be three or four employees. They may not have a full-time FD, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, but at the same time, but as I said earlier about when you look at smaller fund managers, you take the same risk as the fund managers with smaller businesses. But I want to see that there's things in place that when they do grow that that's the thing that they will they'll address first but yeah the team is a team is really important from that point of view just the ability to to execute follow the money being able to to help where possible or at least place people in in that in those those companies yeah it's essential yeah so you go back to the team again yeah so a lot of things come back to that one thing that i, w- I would i'd interest in your opinion on the diversification because as time goes by, I have probably started to think diversification within EIS fund in particular or, or VCT is perhaps less important than I first thought because you need to generate a portfolio. I was wondering your perspective on diversification within a VCT or an EIS. So from a just from a manager diversification point of view first, I think you want to have a diversification of managers. To start off with, because you're still taking risk with the individual manager. Sometimes managers fail. So I think that's from that point of view, you want to make sure that you've got diversification of managers. The other thing is that what you're looking for, uh, possibly, uh, and this is clearly not advice, 
But one way of looking at it is that you start off your search with more generalist managers that have a wider spread of sectors. And within that wider spread of sectors, provided obviously they have a team that, that understands those sectors clearly. But, um, and within that, you will get, within those sectors, obviously you want to make sure that there's a variety of, 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 of clients or users of, of the, in, in those. So there's, it's not just you know, three sectors and then each sector has, has three companies. That's quite narrow still. There's quite a sort of a concentrated port, portfolio. So for VSTs, I do expect VCTs to aim at least for growth for themselves, that they become bigger and bigger mm-hmm. uh, and become more and more diversified. I'm not too bothered whether they have 30 companies or 35 five companies, but I, w- I would like to see that there is a uh, move towards more companies, provided the team can handle it clearly, because otherwise don't do it, then stay more concentrated. Really. But if you're doing four managers, at least, for example, so that's something that we would sit down with clients and talk about at least four individual managers. You can create quite a diverse portfolio of VCTs already because some managers have more than one VCT. Now, some VCTs are just doubling up, so may not be any any point really in, in uh, yeah, the, the... diversification within those management groups. But there are now managers with more than one strategy in VCTs, so it is something to, to consider there. So... On the EIS side, because the portfolios are smaller in the main than VCTs, you are looking at more managers over time, not necessarily the first year, but I would expect some consideration to be given to following some of your money with the fund managers, provided you continue to be happy with the performance of those managers, clearly. So there's an all there's So an reinvesting in a second tranche of the of a fund in a later year, you mean? Yeah, so you get some exits from a manager. There's nothing wrong with reinvesting the proceeds with the same manager, provided you're you're happy with that manager. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if they're giving you exit the proceeds, v- there, you you probably have a degree of satisfaction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, um, but over time, I would say start building a more diverse portfolio. So if you do yes on the, on the regular every year, every two years do consider it to add more managers. Don't just stick with the same three or four managers. Uh, because within specifically with the EIS, there's such a breadth and depth, I guess, width, all these of various different strategies you can find within the EIS. If you have a particular interest in you know social impact, there's a few managers who specialize in that. If you're more interested in in technology that you know more, I guess looks at renewable technologies, for example, sustainable tech technologies, not necessarily social impact, but more environmental environment yeah. impacts, etc. So it's more towards the ESG end of the conversation. Um, and you can find managers there. You want biotech, you want you know consumer, you can find it. And um, you know media, you can still find it. So there's lots, there's something for everybody in the IS. And if you really can't find it, then you know you can dip your toe on the, some of the online platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, you know, like me, interested in breweries, <laughs> <laughs> then you know, yes. um, then you can you can fill your boots there. And, 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 and getting the perks from investing. 
with, with, with some discount beer or oh, something. Yeah. No, no, but it's it it is it is it is, you know, there's so much variety in the eyes. You can you can make a really bespoke solution for for yourself as an individual investor, but you can definitely as an advisor, you can you can also create something beautiful for you for your clients that way. Um, there's less choice, I guess, from that point of view with VCTs. But even there, there's there's some very specific strategies you can follow. For example, aim strategy. You can you can look at hybrids. Um, you could also look at some specialists there. Still, um, consumer, uh, more engineering, more you know deep deep tech stuff. Earlier stage, later stage, and again, looking at that from that point of view, you you want to be able to look at a, creating a portfolio with possibly some later stage and some earlier stage. You know, and depending on your risk profile, you could add more to the earlier stage, or depending on your investment horizon, you can add more to your early stage or less, depending on your investment horizon, please. So, but that's, that's something to consider. There's obviously other financial planning considerations to be had. If you're 40 investing in the US, then you have a different time horizon than when you're 75 or Absolutely. 85. Yeah. So those things need to be taken into consideration. You need to start, you know, talking to the executives of your will about the consequences of holding <laughs> EIS and EIS shares. Yeah, yeah, because because the, the, the benefits can disappear if you die. Um, yeah. But at the same time, going through pr- probate also creates some other impacts as well. So re- in terms of resetting valuations. So, oh, um, no, no, complex. no, absolutely. So it's, uh, but... You know, you have to talk with clients about, about these things. So. Yeah. Okay. So I think we've covered a lot of areas there. What I'd like to do now is move on to our favorite questions. So we will throw these at you. And because you're not actually an investment manager yourself, we'll, 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 we'll drop a couple. But we'll get your perspectives on these. So Yeah, and I'm not going to talk about the last brewery I invested in either. Oh dear! <laughs> no, first, no, 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 no. Because the it's first fine. question is, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. Which sounds like <laughs> no. So that's interesting, actually, because I think so. I think this is the one thing that you learn when you look at, and that goes to show, that that goes with researching fund managers as much as individual investors investments. Is there is a asymmetric, I guess you want to call it, level of knowledge. Because the fund manager knows a lot more about the portfolio and about what they're doing than you would as an analyst. Yeah. And equally, when you look at a, a pitch deck from an individual company, you look at their finances, etc. And this is something you find out when you talk to fund managers as well. It's not everything in those pitch decks or you know illustrations and you know, projections is necessarily based on uh, <laughs> a lot of truth. <laughs> um, some of it is just. Oh wow! Um, every year you grow by uh, by fifty percent. That's amazing. Uh, what do you base that on? Entrepreneurs uh, so are an optimistic one, bunch. Yeah, no, it's uh, and so the, I think where the two things that I've learned with when you look at I learned a bunch of things, but I think uh, fairly rele- uh, relevant here, I guess. When you look at individual companies, so the one thing, sorry, the one thing that I've learned with 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 this asymmetric level of knowledge is that I have always less knowledge about the investment than the people presenting it clearly, and you need to be aware of that. You need to be aware that not everything that has been presented is necessarily a lie, but it's definitely may omit some information. Uh-huh. 
It's gone through a typically an optimism prism, but sometimes yeah, a different sort of prism. You need to be aware of that. So, and whereas the mantra has been always, it's really important that the ma- that you know you look at the management team. You know that's a really important bit because you can, and I've listened enough to your podcast to know that there's always this conversation around a good management team can turn around a bad situation. Now, if a particular market falls away, if you get a particularly you know, solid management team, they can think, well, hold on, where can we, where else can we sell this? Or do we adjust the product or the service to a new market, etc.? What do we do? How do we pivot? Favorite buzzword. Um, I think I think we've got an episode coming soon on that. So. Yeah, and, and, and I've seen a couple of management teams during COVID, they just chucked it in. They just gave up. Now, is that something that I could have anticipated? Not necessarily, but it is it is the one thing that I have to be more aware of, that you look at what else are these, are these people doing? Do they have other jobs? If so, is there going to be a conflict at some point? That they have to choose between their company and their, their other, other job that provides maybe more stability. Yeah, or you just go, wow, those are really amazing managers because they've had such a good track record in the past because they've done something similar or even bigger. It doesn't mean they can they can repeat it. So that's the it's a, it's a luck versus skill argument, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, you know so yeah. And the other the other thing I've learned is that not all valuations are created equal. You know, even with some VCs and and uh, yes, funds. In even what there, sense? Well, so this is with a VC manager who no longer works in the industry. <laughs> I'm still not giving <laughs> the name of the VCT, but they were convinced that their portfolio was going to take off the next year. And they gave me all the reasons. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And then two years later, uh, the VCT had to be bought up by another VCT because it had failed pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. It's, it's not just company management who can have that optimism prism. No, absolutely. So it's... Um, and then to do with this valuation thing, it, I find it fascinating. Back in the day, there was a v, there were three VC managers in the same portfolio company. When the portfolio company was sold, two of the managers wrote up the nav of their VST, and one of them reduced it. <laughs> At which point, yeah. I had to take the uh, horrible decision to devalue the VST effectively on our client's books, and that became uh, that 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 came off the list immediately because we said, hold on, if they made this much of a gaff on their valuation on this particular company, what else have been they've not been doing properly? Again, that manager is no longer around, but it's um it's an issue. So that's yeah. So those are that that was that that I call that a failure on my side actually for not having seen that before it it, it that, that came about because I could have seen it before. I know there's one or two companies just now in in more than one VCT portfolio at different valuations. So not all of them are very wide differences. So the EIS and VCT industry that we work in is great in many ways, but it's not perfect. What would you like to change about it? I think there's still room for improvement on transparency. And that is not just on, I mean, the, the typical thing people say, oh, yeah, costs and fees and stuff. That's not the biggest thing. I think sometimes managers hide behind, well, we don't have to show you the whole por- portfolio. And this sometimes with VSTs where they can truncate the effectively the list of, of yeah, they, portfolio they companies. They don't give the top 20, but below that there's yeah. more or above a certain threshold. But Yeah. 
So, and I appreciate that I can't then ask for it without the VST having to publish it mm-hmm. yeah. for everybody because it's you know um, it's a listed vehicle, so they have to then. So, the same with the IAS managers. Not so some IAS managers they put all their investments up on the website, including and they're very open about which companies have failed. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yes, because there will be failures, and I want to see them, and then I want to have a conversation with them about so what happened. Was that optimism prism, as you call it, <laughs> at, at play here? Or was it just, you know, bad luck because, you know, a company in Germany came up with a better technology that, that was cheaper? You know, so things like that happen clearly. So it's, yeah, so that transparency, yeah, I, I, I really like that. So the, the more transparent, the better, I think. Yes, a good analyst answer, I think, because I feel like it's been half a lot advocating for the same. <laughs> Yeah, I think, well, I think also clients they're interested in, they know that people aren't always 100% right about everything because a lot of clients have, you know, they're, they're experienced investors. They know their ups and downs. They know companies fail. They also want to see that companies can fail and that managers just open about it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. We, Dave Foreman, who was on a couple of episodes ago, talked about when they had their first portfolio failure ringing around all the investors to say it happened, and and pretty much all of them just said, "Well, thank you for letting me know. We expected that. That's fine." Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. It's um, and actually on that, I think it's important now more so than ever that investors and advisors are aware that some EIS managers will be so successful, not necessarily by design, but sometimes by luck, that some of those portfolio companies that that they've got the clients into will have an exit within three years. And I don't think that, so there's a new crop of investors that have gone into EIS in the last few years that they haven't seen this before, that you can go, oh, yeah, but I thought I was going to hold this for three years minimum. Now you've sold it after a year. What am I doing now? What's what's going on? So I think that's that's a side, that's a side bit that you do need to educate investors on. Yeah. Well, what um, I would hope under those circumstances, at least the exit would be worthwhile. And I know it hasn't always been, but mostly you would hope it's, it's circumstances where you're getting a nice exit and oh yeah, realization. Um, and I've, I've even seen one of the where they had the exit before they got the IAST certificates in. <laughs> so it's just you know it happens, but it's important that you have that conversation with clients. That that that's nothing to do with transparency, clearly, but. That's just something that you want to have a conversation with clients about, just a bit of preparation. Um, yes, you can hold it for 10 years, but equally, you could bin it for a year. So as readers know, I'm an avid listener. I'm off on holiday soon, so anxious to get some books. Anything out there you would recommend? Well, it depends how long your holiday is, but uh, my favorite book is actually a series of books. It's by two writers, uh, Stephen Erickson and Ian Esselman. I think they're two Canadians. They're archaeologists, anthropologists, etc. By uh, by training, but uh, they've they've written a series of books, and the biggest series in that one is called the Malazan Book of the Fallen. So this is an epic fantasy. Okay. Uh, there's a couple of other books that they're both written different angles or different vantage points, basically to the same. The same history is it's obviously high fantasy. Sorry, there's no elves and there's no uh, dragons. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's basically it's the rise and fall of an empire, written through the eyes of various peoples that lived within the empire. 
So it's it's epic fantasy, and this is going to be a controversial opinion, but I think it's better than uh, Tolkien. <laughs> oh, you'll get hate so mail for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's definitely a, better than Game, Game of Thrones. I've I've read I've read through them uh, twice now. I'm just getting ready for a third uh, run through because they're, they're writing some books now, uh, finishing some books on prequels to the history. So it's um, so yeah, it's fascinating. It's yeah, there's lots of, you know, about war. It's about um, people, basically, about how people behave toward each other. Some bigger items, uh, topics are, are touched on, fairly modern topics, I guess, but um, but all through uh, a lens of uh, uh, epic fantasy. Okay, well, that sounds interesting. I should maybe have to, maybe I can start it on my holiday and maybe not get it all finished. Yeah, I mean, some of the books are only about a thousand pages, so it's uh, definitely good, good fun. Yes, that sounds great for the beach. So, if people want to find out more about what you're doing at Evelyn Partners, where should they go? Yeah, so we have uh, well, it's two websites really. So it's Evelyn.com, Evelyn with a Y, and there you'll find everything to do with uh, what services we have for entrepreneurs, for example, for businesses. Uh, but also for charities. And obviously, we have the usual financial planning and investment management services, obviously. But uh, so we do a, a bit more. For people that are purely interested in just making their own investments, um, we have Best Invest, and that's um, full range, you know, unit trust, investment trust, et cetera, but also uh, venture capital trusts. Excellent. Well, we'll post um, links to both of those in the show notes. So if anyone wants to find out, they can, they can easily find you there. Thank you very much for coming on today, Edward. Really enjoyed chatting with you, as I always do. We 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 chat oh, regularly. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's good. It's good. I enjoy this. But glad to finally get you on the podcast properly. So thank you very much. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.